Hello and welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And of course, as always, I have to remind you that you can reach us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments. And also, if you'd like to be a guest, let us know. Today we have Danny Grandy. And he is the co-founder of Arbor. Just a moment, Danny's going to be with us and tell us all about what he is up to there. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. We'll be right back with Danny Grandy. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw a Welcome, and thanks for tuning in. We're recording today from my home studio here in Butte, Montana, and we just had a little mini blizzard this morning. Don't know how that impacted everyone here in town, but some crazy weather. I just want to say welcome, and thanks for tuning in. Today, our guest is Danny Grande. Did you get that same storm up there in Calgary, Danny? We did not. We've actually been having some pretty beautiful weather. It's Canada, so it usually is cold, but I was wearing shorts this week. Oh, my goodness. Complain. So what's what's the current temperature there? I'm not going to lie. I haven't been outside yet today, but it looks, uh, I don't know, probably around zero degrees Celsius, which is, I think, 32 Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's that's pretty warm. Loving it. I love the snow for sure. Danny, tell us a little bit about Arbor. Yeah, so Arbor is a data science platform that focuses on sustainability. What we do is we help companies measure, improve, and showcase the environmental and societal impact of their products and their brand overall to their consumers. I love that because you added societal. So we're going to dive a little deeper into that topic. But first, are you from Calgary? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, I, I uh, grew up in Alberta, and so one of the provinces in Canada. I was born in a town called Valley View. It's way up north. It's like a town of, I don't know, 2,500 people or something. Then moved to Edmonton, who are the rivals of our hockey team, which is always fun because my family is there as well. And then um, I moved to Calgary. And how about... The software programming, was that always your niche? It sounds like that was your general training. <laughs> um, yeah, I went to university for Bachelor of Science in Computer Science as well as a Bachelor of Commerce. Um, I actually didn't finish it because, you know, Arbor sort of started taking off and so I'm devoting all my time to this. I haven't programmed in, I don't know, a year now because our CTO is just way too good at it. So there wasn't enough room for me. So I've been more on the business side. So you had a double major or a minor in commerce? A uh, dual degree, actually. Gotcha. And what made you decide to select or choose that? Did you always know that you wanted to create something, uh, a, a software product? Yeah, I think I've always been like a builder, you know, playing with Legos as a kid. And my dad was in computer science as well. So it was just a, a good path to go down. And when did you know or, or what happened around the whole decision to found Arbor? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your co-founder here too. For sure. Um, 
yeah, I'll rewind a couple years here because kind of important to the story. Um, we all met in university. We started a company called Co-Design Factory that actually helped computer science students and software engineering students get real applicable experience in the workplace. And so what we would do is we would go out and find a bunch of different projects around town, come back to the university, get students and walk them through the project from beginning to end. Our whole goal with this was literally just to, you know, get students practical experience, help them out, really help people. So we were making $4 per hour. I'm not sure if that's even legal to say on public radio, but we quickly found out that it wasn't sustainable monetarily wise because we got really tired of sitting in a cold, dark basement eating ramen. And so we transitioned away from that model and we started working on a new company called 99Bits. 99Bits was just the four of us at the beginning. We just went around town and did the projects ourselves so that we could actually, you know, make money to pay tuition, you know, go out for drinks or wings or whatever it may be. But we quickly realized that it wasn't what we wanted to do because we were all entrepreneurs. And so when you're doing, you know, projects for clients, it can get very, I don't know the right word for it, sort of annoying because these clients will just keep asking for more and more and more. And you're not really working on what you want to work on. So this is where Arbor came in. We went into an ATB, that's Alberta Treasury Branch. It's just a bank from Calgary. We wanted to hackathon from ATB and we developed out the very first iteration of Arbor. At the time, it was called Money Tree. It was a banking application that connected to your bank and it would tell you how your purchases align with your values. And so from there, it's just been iterations on iterations. And we're here today with Arbor where we're in a cool spot because A, we get to help people like we did in Co-Design Factory. B, we get to make money like we did in 99Bits. But C, we get to actually, you know, build cool stuff and stuff we want to build. You said you all met together in university. Where were you going to school? And um, how much was uh, technology a part of everybody's uh, focus there? I mean, just tell us a little bit about your educational experience together. Yeah, um, our educational experience wasn't the best, which is why we actually built that first company to, you know, give practical experience. So uh, my three other co-founders, Ben, the CTO, is actually my brother, so I didn't meet him in university. But (laughs) then we have Alex Todorovic. He is our CEO. And then Abdullah Chaudhry, and he's our chief business development officer. And you said, you know, and I've heard this before, that when you go to school, it it seems like the programs in universities, and, and, you know, I know that there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, they're kind of outdated. Did you find that that was the case? Is that why you decided to kind of branch out and try and gain practical experience for yourself and your classmates? Yeah, exactly. Um, We, especially in computer science and commerce, there's a lot of stuff that you can just learn online for yourself. It does help when you're getting into the sort of nitty gritty details of a specific subject when you have a mentor or a prof or someone to explain these tough subjects to you. 
But for the most part, I think both these degrees can mainly be taken online in a in a free or way less expensive sense. So how far did you get with your education? And, you know, we hear this a lot of times. I mean, Bill Gates, so many other people, um, <laughs> they, they just didn't finish. How far did you get? And what was kind of the deciding factor that made you pull the plug on the university, the whole university thing, getting a degree? So I think I have about two semesters left, so about a year. Um, I actually applied for the Thiel Fellowship, or Thiel Fellowship, rather. It is a um, scholarship or grant from Peter Thiel that offers you $100,000 to drop out of university. Mm -hmm. And I made it to the very final stages of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, didn't get the $100,000, but it led me to the decision that I don't really need a degree to pursue what I want to pursue, especially because I have this whole company backing me as well. Mm-hmm. And then you have the student loans, of course. That's a big deal for many of us. You know, I'm still paying mine off and probably will be until I'm in my 70s. And, yeah. you know, it's it, it's panned out for me, but, you know, I, I totally understand, feel your pain. Um, how about the other guys on your team? Did they do the same? Uh, our CEO, Alex, has actually done the same, yeah. He has a aircraft maintenance degree. He went into SAIT. It's a Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. But then he transferred to U of C for computer science. And he's in the same boat as me now. Mm-hmm. And your brother, is he still finishing out his degree? No, he's the good kid in the family. He's He's finished it. Ah, the good kid in the family. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's that leads to another question. What do your what does your family say about all this? Uh, they are super supportive. My my parents are very unique, both in their own ways, and they're they're here for the journey. And I think that that's part of the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, having that support team. I'm not sure exactly how to ask this question, but, you know, what's your parents' backgrounds and what is it about them and their background that, in your opinion, makes them so supportive of what you're doing? I mean, some some parents would be kind of freaking out. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. My dad is actually an entrepreneur as well. He owns his own business and it's going very well. He is one of the most logical people I've ever met. And so if he sees the logic be- behind something, he's behind it. My mom, on the other side, is one of the most emotional people I've ever met. And so it's a really cool sort of dynamic where (laughs) I get to learn from both of these people who are very, very opposite ends of the, you know, logic emotion spectrum. But I get to learn from them and they both see it for logical reasons as well as emotional reasons. And you mentioned mentoring before. Does your team have a mentor or several mentors that are helping you along this journey? Yeah, we've been super lucky with the mentorship and advisor network we've gotten. We have some really cool people on it. There's a company called Thinair Labs. It's a sort of investment firm in Alberta, and they took us under their wing at a very early stage and have given us so much um, advice and mentorship and um, experience that we wouldn't have had if we had not met them. So you said, is this thin as in T-H-I-N, air? Yeah, 
right. And uh, this is one of the questions I was going to ask later on, but since we're on the subject, are they an investor, an investment team? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. All right. So we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. We're going to take a little break and we will be right back with Danny Grandy, co-founder of Arbor. Welcome back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, we are speaking with Danny Grandy, and he's the co-founder of Arbor. So your brother and your, you said a CTO you have on your team. So there's three of you, right? There's four of us, four founders. And then I think we're at 15 employees now. Wow. Okay. So let's just maybe mention the four founders again, just so we get that. For sure. Yeah. It's Ben Grandy, the CTO, Alex Todorovic, CEO, and Abdullah Chaudhry, the uh, chief business development officer. Gotcha. And yourself. Fantastic. And myself. Yeah. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of Arbor. How does it work? And I was hoping we could kind of talk about this from both the Oh, brand per se perspective and the consumer. What's it like as a consumer using Arbor? And I take it that they will come upon it when they visit the e-commerce website of the brand? Yeah, exactly. Can you kind of explain for our listeners as a consumer what they'll get out of Arbor when they do find for a site? For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you go to one of our clients' websites, let's say it's a sock company, what happens is you come to dannygrandysocks.com and you go to buy an item. And on that item, it'll tell you the environmental and we're working on societal impact of that product. So you can see things like carbon emissions, waste usage, uh, water usage, And then we're working on human rights and labor rights and how much these people are getting paid, all of these sort of metrics and what matters most to you. And what matters most to you? Can you, I mean, as a consumer, do I check boxes and say, this is what's most important to me and it tells, gives me a score that for that brand? So in the early days of Arbor, we actually had a browser extension that would tell you how well the websites you're visiting are sort of aligning with your values. We've gone away from that model um, because we've, we used it as consumer testing so that we could really see that this is something that consumers want. From that, we you know, got a, a good list of what consumers care about the most in what different regions of the world. And so we're working on some pretty sophisticated uh, machine learning and AI to be able to tell when you, Carol, visit this site, what is it that you are most likely to care about? And that brings up a whole nother question too. What kind of differences did you find in regions? Are we talking about just within the United States or globally? No, it's definitely globally. 
for example, there's this saying, I think it might have been Bill Gates, but he said global warming is a first world problem because you really don't see all of the problems that go on, you know, across the world. My co-founder is from Pakistan and he uh, always brings up, you know, the, the human rights laws that he's seen broken there. And um, you see it in different places of the world, like Bangladesh, how how workers can really be mistreated and mispaid based on what they're doing. So consumers in Bangladesh versus, say, the United States, you'd find major differences there as far as what they care about when it comes to your platform? I, I can't say for sure, but I would I would assume so, yes. And what kind of things did you discover, you know, globally from location to lo- location as far as what consumers were most concerned about when it comes to products that align with their values? Yeah, so when we launched our browser extension, it was right around the, the George Floyd moment. And so we saw a lot more diversity and uh, inclusion sort of topics come up where people really care about these things because of what is going on in the world right now. And so I think that, you know, you don't pick one and stick with it the rest of your life. There are going to be different topics that come up that are pressing or, or urgent where consumers should care about this over other sort of aspects. And how about from a brand perspective, how does e-commerce brand integrate and use the platform? Yeah, so we have a online dashboard. Um, you sign in with your, your username and password. And what it does is it automatically scrapes all of your different products into our dashboard and gives it a baseline estimate of the different um, sort of topics we touched on earlier, like emissions or, or water usage. Uh, from there, if there's something wrong with you know the data where it didn't scrape properly or you were misrepresenting it on your site, you can go in and add advanced sort of metrics to it, like where the cotton was ginned or where uh, you did the dyeing process. And so it really breaks it down step by step by step so that these e-commerce brands can easily come in and have a baseline estimate, but then improve on that estimate as well. Mm-hmm. And how do we know that the validity of the claims that folks are making on their websites, you know, how do we avoid greenwashing? I guess it's a real question. Yeah, exactly. So what we do is we give the worst case scenario for the uh, specific product through all of the data we have. And then it's on the brand to come in and offer information and uh, validate that information on, you know, this process wasn't done here it was done at this facility that only uses um, uh, natural resources or uh, or solar panels or or wind turbines to you know actually operate these machines. One of the topics that you kind of brought up that you would like to talk about, and I agree that this is is really important. Uh, you know, what's going on out there in the world uh, seems like sustainability is front and center for especially younger generational folks. What about those companies that just kind of are turning a, a deaf ear? Can you kind of give us a, a sense of the pulse of what you've found in, in your research and um, you know what's really going on in the business realm? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, my co-founder and I, Abdullah, always sort of talk about this topic, and we've coined the phrase Schrodinger's data. Um, so say say that again, Schrodinger's? Schrodinger's? Schro- yeah, Schrodinger's data. And it's some weird, obscure physics sort of analogy where there was this physicist, a theoretical physicist, who um, came up with this theory that if you put a cat in a sealed box, and I'll, I'll um, sort of really break it down to the simplest of terms, there's a lot more going on, but if you put a cat in a sealed box with this vial of poison, and the poison could break at any moment, the cat in that state is both dead and alive. And so it also offers sort of a, a moral philosophy where if I open the box and the cat is dead, did I kill the cat? And so we've seen the same thing with companies, and that's why we call it Schrodinger's data. They don't want to open the box because if the data in the box is bad, they're going to be responsible for it. Oh, I see. But, so why why take the cover off of the information and open it to the public because it's not going to look pretty. Exactly. But that being said, there are many different um, governmental and organizational legislations coming into place that require you to open that box. And so our whole thing is if you open that box and you open it early, what you can do is you can measure the data that's inside. But then you can also improve upon that data so that when you showcase it to your consumers willingly, instead of through one of these governmental legislations, then you will have sort of an upper hand on your competition. Mm -hmm. And I guess this leads to one of the first questions that I intended to ask, and it's really about the mission of your company. Um, Bottom line, what is it that you hope to have in the way of impact, you know, not just uh, in Canada or the U.S., but globally? What is it you want to see happen? Uh, what I personally want to see happen is to have this data at every single point of sale so that consumers can, you know, make informed decisions around the products that they're buying. Yeah, and as a, a brand, I would think, too, that if this becomes widespread, which I do see that happening, um, there's an extra incentive as, you know, a person doing the sourcing to source from reputable places, fair trade, organic, reducing toxins, that's the bottom line, and and the way, like you said, human rights and the way people are treated. Exactly, yeah. And there's benefits that come with that as well. We're calling it cost of delay. Because the longer you wait, the more it's going to cost in the long term. Can you explain that more? Yeah. So, for example, if you are forced to swap your supply chain overnight, you can bet that it's going to be much, much, much more expensive than if you take sort of proactive actions instead of reactive actions. Mm. Yes, gradually start where you are and and do what you can instead of having to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, and flip your whole entire business in one fell swoop. Got it. So I know that a lot of what you're doing is proprietary and protected protected information, but can you share with us some success stories, maybe 
impact that you're already seeing come to fruition with the work that you're doing? For sure. Yeah. Um, we actually had a marketplace as a use case. Um, it was on our website. And what we did was we got a bunch of sustainable and ethical products from around the web. And we displayed our data on top of these products. And we saw huge increases in click-through rates, in basket size, in um, speed to purchase. But we also saw that we sort of took out you know, 5,000 kilograms of waste. We, we took thousands of kilograms of emissions, not actually out of the air, but the fact that these people are shopping from more sustainable and more ethical brands means that they're not shopping at these, these worst brands. And so we're mitigating that, that carbon emission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In our last guest, we were speaking just about this very topic, you know, consumer driven change versus, you know, political or leadership driven change. And um, I don't know if you looked at this or not, but this is always my constant question. Consumers are going to have to pay more, maybe. And did you analyze or at all look at price and its impact on this kind of overlaying of sustainability information. Yeah, so that's where those that that cost of delay comes back in. Um, with the cost of delay, you're not you're not losing money. You're actually going to be making money in the long term if you make your brand more sustainable. And we can see you know different legislations like this New York Fashion and Sustainability Act. Uh, they're they're threatening to a lot of big companies that if they don't reveal 50% of their supply chain, then they're going to have to pay millions and millions in fines. But and so really when what, that comes into... Yeah, what what I was asking, and I'll, I'll let you finish your thought there, but what I was really asking is consumers having to pay more for products. Yeah, exactly. But at the end of the day, the cost to the consumer is going to be the revenue the business makes. And so... If you start adding more costs on top to these unethical or unsustainable products, then the cost to the consumer is going to go up on those as well. And I, I'm sorry, I kind of interrupted your, your thought there, New York making laws that businesses have to reveal. Was there anything else that you nope. wanted to say about that? <laughs> nope, that's all good. <laughs> so how might our listeners find you, Danny? Yeah, the listeners can either reach me directly at danny at arbordb.co, that's A-R-B-O-R-D-B dot C-O, or you can just visit the last part of that email, arbordb.co. Okay, and that's D as in dog, B as in boy, are you saying DB? Yeah. Okay. That's correct. Well, thank you so much. I can tell you've got a, a lot of work ahead of you. There's a, there's <laughs> a lot more that we're going to hear from Danny Grande. And I appreciate I it. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Carol. This was fun. Mm-hmm. This is Heartstock. I'm your okay. host, Carol Murphy. And as usual, we shall see you next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. The
Passing, but on the other side. 